Welcome to Black, Brown, and Bilingue, where our mission is to unite the black and brown communities through education, storytelling, and community engagement. The vision of Black, Brown, and Bilingue is to be part of creating a world in which Black and Brown identities are affirmed, bilingualism and biculturalism are nurtured, and equity is the driving force behind all that we do. Thank you for joining us again today. I am Lisette Jacobson, and I am one of your hosts. And I'm Maurice McDavid. I'm your other host. Hello, thank you for tuning in to another episode of Black, Brown, and Bilingue. We are thrilled to have Dr. Joseph Flynn, Associate Professor of Curriculum and Instruction at Northern Illinois University. Um, he also is the author of White Fatigue, Rethinking Resistance for Social Justice, and he is also one of the co-founders to or of the NIU Social Justice Summer Camp for Educators that Maurice and I both attended. So uh, welcome to the show, Dr. Flynn. What's up? Thanks for having me. How's you guys doing? We're doing yeah. great. Wonderful. That's cool. <clears throat> hey, we are so excited to have you here today. Um, you know, to get us started, we, we wanted you to just be able to tell us a little bit about uh, yourself and your um, your educational journey, kind of how you've gotten to where you are. I, I didn't know, by the way, that you are from the Peoria area. I, I checked that out, saw that. Um, I went to school down in, in Galesburg. So Peoria was our big city to go to, you know, and, and represent Woodruff too. So uh, tell us just a little bit about yourself, your background, and then your educational journey. Uh, well, like you said, uh, I come from Peoria, Illinois, uh, born and raised, um, Homer Richard Pryor. Um, Proud to be from there and uh, graduated from uh, Woodruff High School. So I'm a proud warrior too. Uh, back in 1988, after that, I went on to Eastern Illinois University um, where I earned a um, bachelor's degree in philosophy of all things. Um, and then I went, I got into teaching um, by way of philosophy actually. Um, and, <clears throat> excuse me. And then I went on to uh, earn a master's degree in curriculum studies from DePaul University uh, in Chicago, and then finished my education uh, at Michigan State University, uh, go Spartans, with a uh, degree, with a doctorate in teacher education. And I started working at Northern Illinois in the Department of uh, Curriculum and Instruction in uh, 2007 and have been there uh, doing my thing ever since. Um, so I, I teach a lot about uh, curriculum, of course, and um, educational change as well. But I think what my mainstays are is uh, social justice and multicultural education, um, race and media and popular culture. And what I really focus on uh, to put it into one term is whiteness studies. I, I look at the history and impact um, of 
this phenomenon we call whiteness um, in, in, in the context of America, because you can look at whiteness through a global lens as well, of course, but I focus mostly on the development of whiteness here in the USA and, and the, the good and the bad and the ugly of this thing we call whiteness. Um, and alongside that, uh, I have always believed that it's important to look at things through the lens of popular culture. Um, and, and that kind of gets me into being able to look at film and television and music with a really strong eye toward hip hop um, as, as well as other uh, forms of media. And, you know, that's about it. Um, I'm a Libra. <laughs> so am I. I knew that about you, actually. And I don't know how I knew that, but I wanted to say, like, you're a fellow Libra. <laughs> that's yeah. kind of creepy, but whatever. It, well, I mean, you know, we can't make any decisions, so. <laughs> we evaluate balance. Yep. Um, so you touched upon your passion for hip hop. And uh, I believe it was two years ago you offered a session on hip hop ed for the NIU uh, social justice camp. And right now, just with everything that is going on in the world, um, I think we're seeing a shift in, in um, perspectives. And I'm, I'm hearing a lot more on hip hop being taught in the classroom. So can you first tell us um, how your, or what is your passion for hip hop? How did it get started? Um, how, like, how did you become a lover of it? Oh, wow. Um, thanks for that question. It's a big one. <laughs> That's about to take me back. <laughs> for real. Take it back. I remember the first time I heard um, Rapper's Delight from Sugar Hill Gang. And, and that was my introduction. Um, and that was 1979, I believe, when uh, Rapper's Delight came out. And hip hop by that point had already been um, circulating throughout um, New York uh, since 73. So it, you know, it was a little ways along. Um, but then after Rapper's Delight, you know, came Breaking. Uh, not simply the film, but, you know, the introduction of Breaking, uh, breaking in um, the Midwest. And so uh, my cousins, uh, me, uh, you know, friends of mine, we all started getting into breakdancing. Now, I'm not going to sit here and try to act like I was good because <laughs> I got so frustrated trying to learn how to kick a windmill that <laughs> I just decided that I was just going to be an enthusiast. <laughs> but, you know, uh, with, the, the, with that kinetic nature of uh, breaking as, an, as a dance and art form, um, you know, I had uh, one of my cousins my cousin Ray, he was uh, into uh, breaking and graffiti. Um, we would go out on uh, Friday and Saturday nights and kids would be, you know, out at, you know, Westlake in Peoria or hanging out at the mall. And, you know, you'd see kids, you know, trying to spit rhymes, uh, definitely getting into battles. Um, so at that time, it was still kind of um, situated as a fad in pop culture. Um, but I think what really took me over the top was being introduced uh, to Public Enemy. Mm. And, and I had even, I had loved songs from uh, Grandmaster Flash and the Furious Five, like um, uh, The Message, of course, but mm -hmm. they also had another great song called New York, New York 
Um, I used to roll around with my cousin Ray listening to a lot. He turned me on to that. But then there, then there was like this, um, I don't want to say it was a, a, a blank space in the history so much as I don't think that in the Midwest, at least, it was gaining steam as quickly as it was out on the coast. Um, but then for me, all that changed with uh, It Takes a Nation of Millions to Hold Us Back from Public Enemy in 1987-88. And once I heard that album, it was just over. Because it, was, it wasn't just party. It wasn't just fun. It was... Right you need to sit down and listen to this for a minute. Now you can still, you can still rock out to it, right? You can still have a good time with it. Um, but there's something deeper that's going on here. And, and realizing that complexity and understanding the message that PE was trying to um, present to the public, it just made me think about the band, the group rather in us in a different way and then that made me think about hip hop in a, in a, in a much deeper way to just to know that this art form can say so much more than what it people had been saying about it up to that point. So that's, that's really what got me into hip hop. Then yeah. after that, like tribe and everybody else coming in right after that, because that's to me, that marks the beginning of the golden age. So, so I'll say a couple things here, uh, Dr. Flynn, number one, um, Hip hop is nothing without the hype man. So even if you were just the hype man when everybody else was breaking, <laughs> Lil John made a whole career out of being the hype man. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. <laughs> right. So so that's number one. Number two, I think um, I think that leads perfectly um, what what you just said there that that hip hop can be used as an instrument, right, to to bring about some of these changes and engage in some of these discussions. Um, works perfectly for for our next question which is simply you know in what ways uh, have you seen hip-hop be used in education um and 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 i think it's important when we talk about this both to have some examples and some non-examples have you seen some ways too in which maybe people have attempted to make that connection and maybe didn't quite land it uh, okay, let's let's start with the not first, because uh, I, I think when people started uh, realizing that hip hop and, and in this case specifically rap music um, was more uh, and had more value, um, then you started seeing people in say the late '90s, early aughts, you know, trying to use Tupac to teach poetry. Mm-hmm. but doing it in ways that um, denigrated and infantilized the, uh, the knowledge that students already had. You know, it's like, who, who do you think you are, you know, middle-class white teacher coming into this predominantly black space and using, you know, a uh, black art form, a largely black art form um, to, to teach us poetry. Right. We, we know what Tupac is about. We know what he's what he's talking about. We, we don't need that. And so oftentimes in the early days, uh, teachers were using hip hop as more of a novelty um, as opposed to, you know, a primary text, so to speak. And then um, but then when you start get into work of like um, 
uh, Ernest Morel and Jeffrey Duncan Andrade and, and others, you start understanding that it's not simply about trying to use hip hop as a way to get students to understand Shakespeare so much as it is using hip hop as a way of helping students understand themselves in their own lives, right? And, and their own communities, which gets us back to what we would call the fifth pillar of hip hop. For, for those of you out there that don't know this, there are five pillars to hip hop. Um, the first four being the DJ, and you always have to start with the DJ because that's where this all starts. And then the MC, the breaker, uh, the uh, b-boy, uh, and then the fourth pillar is the graffiti artist. And then through the ideas of uh, Africa Mambata, uh, the fifth pillar is knowledge of self and by extension, knowledge of self and community. And so um, when you start looking at these hip hop pedagogues like uh, Morel and Andrade and, um, and definitely Christopher Emden, um, you start understanding that each of these different pillars of hip hop can be used as ways to shape pedagogical practice and not simply just talk about, well, let's, let's read this cool poem by Kendrick Lamar and see if we can understand how it connects to, I don't know, Mark Twain or, or whomever, right? Mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> so hip hop in and of itself, we always have to recognize that first and foremost, it's a culture. It's not simply just rap music and how novel it is that these uh, ladies and gentlemen can, you know, spit words. Mm -hmm. And you know what, what I hear you saying too, if, if, if I'm not mistaken, is it really centralizes black voices, right? And black experiences, whereas typically it has been used as like a comparison to white culture, right? Yeah. That's, that's mostly what exists in our schools. Um, do you, can you recall maybe an artist that, you know, when you heard a song or a particular song that you were like, wow, this is my life. Like I can connect to this so much. Like who was that? Or what track was that? Um, I would say De La, De La Soul, mm -hmm. uh, the first album, Three Feet High and Rising. Cause De La Soul, um, they're cats from the suburbs, from Long Island. I grew up, I grew up in, you know, a, a working class neighborhood, but with a lot of middle class sensibilities, mm. you know, and, and the kinds of things that the radicalness that um, Public Enemy was talking was definitely more philosophical uh, and helped me that way. But, you know, at the time you had the rise of gangster rap and I didn't I didn't really know anything about that lifestyle. Right. Mm. I mean, there were great songs. You know, I grew up with Ice-T. Uh, starting with Ice-T and, of course, Too Short um, and then definitely N.W.A. and everything that came out of N.W.A. But I didn't really know that life. Hmm. The first hip-hop album that I listened to that I felt like, okay, this is me, was De La Soul's Three Feet High and Rising, which unfortunately is one of the hardest albums to get a hold of if you don't have a copy from back in the day. I think a couple of years ago they... Um, put up all of their um all of their albums um for download in one shot because there was like a hope there's still a whole bunch of problems with uh copyright clearances and whatnot but three feet high and rising is an amazing piece of work um and their sensibility is just was right there with me 
And I ask that because, again, hip hop and rap and just even the black and brown communities, we are not monoliths. And I think when people think of hip hop and rap music, they do think of NWA. They do think of, um, you know, just that one narrative, which isn't representative of everyone. And so I think it was, it's important for, for the listeners to know that and to really broaden uh, their perspective and perception of it. Um, whereas me, you know, the, the brown community, we, we also love hip hop. And, and I think my experience has always been, I'm not black, I'm not white, but I kind of like this hearing Snoop Dogg and Gin and Juice. And we loved that. And, and Mexicans love Tupac and Tupac always showed, or he always showed um, the Mexican community a lot of love. But in fact, his Johnny J is, is one of his producers. And he always was like, you know, oh, Johnny J. Did you know that, Maurice? I did not know that. I didn't think you would. Because I, I always joke with Maurice. I think I'm a little more gangster than he is. Uh, <laughs> it's, it's funny you mentioned that. And, and I'm going to just, just jump in here real quick, Dr. Flynn, and say that I definitely can connect with you in terms of you know, I was born and raised in DeKalb, Illinois. There was more corn here, you know, than, you know, there, we have more cows than black people, you know what I'm saying, when I was growing up here. And so, um, but my older brother definitely was a major fan, um, you know, Snoop Dogg um, uh, um, and, and, you know, the, the album, The Chronic, right? And, and so I remember growing up hearing that here in DMX, you know, Rough Riders. And, and, and so as I thought about a lot of those things, that really built a little bit of my imagery of what I thought it meant to, to, to be black. A lot of that was formed right in these images of, of, of hip hop. And so um, hearing you say though, right, that maybe you connected to something else a little bit more because like you, you know, I, I wasn't a gangbanger. I, I didn't really, you know, connect to that. I didn't really know anybody who was um, uh, directly associated with those. Well, at least I didn't know that I knew people. I found out later my cousin was running things when we had to go <laughs> visit him in the state, right? Uh, but, but I didn't know then. I think one of the things that we do uh, in pop culture is we take a couple of images and then make that represent the whole, right? And you go back to the early days of hip hop back in 73, 74, 75, when it was really in the streets and, you know, in, um, um, in community centers, in, you know, in dive bars, um, <clears throat> you, had, uh, you had a lot of DJs who were predominantly black. A lot of the MCs were predominantly black, but you also had graffiti artists who just spanned the spectrum of race. There, there were, Latino uh, uh, graffiti artists, particularly uh, Puerto Ricans. You had, you know, black graffiti artists. You had white graffiti artists. Um, and if I'm sorry, in my opinion, if it was not for the Puerto Ricans, breaking wouldn't be what it is. You know, so a lot of the the great breakers, um, the great b boys, were uh, Latinos. So, you know, this notion. I mean, yes. Hip hop is born out of the black experience. However, at the same time, as soon as that egg cracked, there was so much more coming into and, and flooding into, um, as soon as that dam broke rather, sorry, mixing these metaphors, but as soon as that dam broke, you had so many more people jumping into that water, 
you know, I mean, so, and that's one of the things that's so great about hip hop is that it's always been this highly communal experience, right? It's always been about let's do what we can to have as much fun as we possibly can in this space. We don't need all that fighting. We don't need arguing. There are other ways that we can resolve differences and there are other ways that we can enjoy each other's company on this, you know, on this random Friday, Saturday, Sunday, Tuesday, whatever nights you want to choose. Right. And, and I think that those early roots, um, you, we can't dismiss those, you know, they always have to be, they are always embedded in what is happening in hip hop. And that's a part of the reason why we talk about a hip hop community, because there are people out there here in DeKalb, uh, over in Chicago, of course, down in St. Louis, over in New York, Atlanta, LA, San Francisco, across the country, Houston, New Orleans, you know, across the country, you have people who are actively negotiating what this community is, what uh, the, the values and, and ideals are, and, and how to keep continuing to spread and do, and do positive, right? Mm -hmm. You know, everybody's not, <laughs> everybody's not, you know, puffy. <laughs> It's funny you bring up Puffy, though. <laughs> I do remember watching Mo Money, Mo Problems and just being like, what a cool video. But I think me and Maurice are from a, like, we're much younger. Not trying to call you out, Dr. Flynn. But I oh, think right. we, were, we were at a time where I think the video played such a big part in, and that imagery played such a big part in just, the, like, the culture of hip-hop. Yeah. Yeah, it did, and it almost hijacked it. Though that was that's the uh, that's probably the unintended consequence, because you know, knowing Puff and where Puff comes from and, and his background in hip hop was starting out, you know, in A and R. Um, I it's clear that he always had a love for hip hop, um, but once those images started getting plastered all over MTV and every other outlet you know, it started to produce a certain image of what hip hop is supposed mm -hmm. to be and how it's supposed to look. And what were you supposed to be like if you wanted to be quote unquote successful in hip hop? Mm -hmm. And and unfortunately, um, that late 90s era being dominated in part by uh, artists like, uh, well, producers like Puffy um, could have been a bad thing. But then what happened? right? All of a sudden, Outkast appears, right? And Outkast basically completely destroys the formula that was being produced in hip-hop, um, in the hip-hop industry, not necessarily in the culture itself, but in the, that corporate imagining of what hip-hop is, you know, Outkast came in and said, no, 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 no. And like, these, like you said, at the awards, at the Source Awards, we got something to say. You know, the South has something to say, and they said a lot, and they changed the trajectory of, of where everything was going um, and used video in different ways. Mm -hmm. And so, um, and then at the same time, you had an artist like um, coming out of North Carolina, you had, uh, is it North Carolina or Virginia? I'm almost embarrassed right now that I can't remember, but uh, you had Missy Elliott coming out in 97, um, 98, I think 97. Um, 
And that was a game changer. And she was not only able to change the game lyrically, she was able to change the game visually too. Mm -hmm. So, and that's the thing that's so great about hip hop. Just when you think it's starting to get stale, there's somebody that's coming up, you know, that's, that's going to change the game. And then of course the game changed even more when we moved to the YouTube era and artists were able to basically break themselves. Missy, by the way, is is from Virginia. You had it right. When you said North Carolina, the first thing I thought of was Petey Pablo. Pablo. And I was like, I know this man is not talking about one hit wonder Petey Pablo, is he? (laughs) Petey, Petey Pablo. So, so. I thought too, North Carolina. Yeah. uh, So, so Dr. Flynn, let's, let, let, let me ask you this, because we're kind of uh, talking um, our, our way through it hip-hop has changed it's had different trajectories it's had uh different meanings in different eras um and so when i think about then your other passion right which is social justice then my question becomes okay has all hip-hop is all hip-hop good for social justice education or or do we need to uh, uh, limit ourselves uh, to particular artists. Um, you know, I guess I'm just wondering um, in what ways um, can hip hop be effective in in uh, social justice work? And and the second piece, obviously, this is black, brown, and bilingue. Um, in what ways, kind of, does hip hop maybe sh- um, and and that social justice work show up differently in the Latino community than in the black community, or or, or vice versa? That's a hard question. Um... First, I, I definitely think that, okay, so I, I, I and, and many of my colleagues believe that you can take practically any text, and depending on the kinds of questions that you ask about that text, you can get at particular themes that you're trying to promote. So you could take, um, let's see, okay, so you could take Kendrick Lamar's All Right, or um, you could even take uh, Kanye West's um, uh, Diamonds from Sierra Leone um, and use those as texts that are specifically speaking to particular social justice issues, right? But you can also take something like Nelly's Tip Drill and read that as a way of getting to a social justice theme by breaking down those um, the ways in which he, especially in the video, um, represents women um, and the marginalization of women. That I mean, what he does in that video. I mean, taking a credit card. My, my, <laughs> you know, my, mother, my mother said I couldn't watch that video. It was on BET on Cut. Okay, <laughs> I was. You know, used to stay up late. Probably about forty years it. old. My mom told me I couldn't watch that video. <laughs> <laughs> But I, I think it's, a, it's always important to recognize, I mean, and, and, and that's, this is true of any genre of music. Um, so you can, we can have the same conversation about rock and roll, you know, so you can definitely take practically any song from, say, uh, uh, Bob Dylan or Bruce Springsteen. And they, they're always, uh, their music is steeped in a, a social justice mission. But then you could take a song, you know, from um, Motley Crue and look at those lyrics and read those lyrics in particular ways to get people to be more aware 
of social justice issues and the ways in which um, different groups are being represented in, in the popular culture. Um, now with Latinos, I think it's really, really important that we always remember that these, you know, in, intimate connections between black and brown folk that have always been there. And when you started seeing artists like, you know, Big Pun and Fat Joe, it was kind of like, you know, um, it was kind of a, a way of the industry finally catching up to the fact that Latinos have always been a part of hip hop and the hip hop movement, hip hop culture. And, um, and when you get all the way up into reggaeton and, and other forms, um, you can't slight those. And you can't disconnect how those forms are directly tied to the hip hop culture and, and hip hop history. So I think it's really, I think it's a great movement and I was just recently, actually, as a side note, listening to um, uh, another podcast, and I'm going to plug it, even though they didn't ask me to. It's called Hit Parade. So it's, uh, it's through Slate Plus. So unfortunately, there's a small uh, fee. But it's the history of the, the Billboard Hot 100. And Chris Melanfi, uh, the host, he, they did an episode on the history of, um, of Latino artists. Uh, on the billboard charts and of course you know in the last 10 15 years we've seen this dramatic spike and i think that's a beautiful beautiful thing because we can't keep misrepresenting the reality of people out there right we can't keep just you know summarily glossing over the you know these large communities and the Latino community is just as important to the American pastiche as the black community, as the white community, as the Asian community, as the indigenous community. And so that's one of the things that I've always appreciated about hip hop. Hip hop has been able to transport itself and reimagine itself in global ways. And through that globalization of hip hop, we've been able to look at social justice issues across the planet and within our own country through the eyes and experiences of a broad diversity of people. And that's an amazing th thing to be able for this thing that's basically started, um, you know, in the Bronx in 73 by one guy, right? You know, so yeah, I think that's all that's really important. So we hear people say, and I don't even remember who, who who said this quote, but they said that hip hop and rap has done more for uh, fighting racism than anything else, than even certain politicians. What do you say to that? That's totally true, yo. I mean, uh, you know, so it, it, it was, when you started the quote, I thought you were getting ready to go into the uh, Gerardo Rivera quote uh, about hip hop doing more damage. Oh, I don't uh, like Gerardo. That community. And of course, you know, of course, Kendrick, I mean, he was responding to Kendrick's performance uh, mm -hmm. at the MTV Video Awards um, or at the Grammy Awards, I think. And um, and of course, Kendrick then uses that as <laughs> the launch point for his Pulitzer Prize winning album, Damn. <laughs> and and anybody that had anything to front on hip hop, I'm like, OK, go listen to Damn and, and tell me how you feel. Right. Mm -hmm. But. 
Um, hip hop. I remember when the Beastie Boys came out, and when uh, in the late eighties, uh, when the Beasties came out. What I didn't know was that the shows that they were playing were interracial shows. You had black kids, Puerto Rican kids, white kids, Asian kids. A lot of people came out to those shows. And by extension, they were learning more. They were seeing more um, Def Jam artists like Public Enemy, et cetera. And then as we start moving through the 90s and you start seeing um, hard rock bands like um, Rage Against the Machine and seeing those crowds and seeing all the people showing up for like a Wu-Tang show. You know, be able to get all those different identities into one space so that they can vibe with each other for two, three hours and be in that moment with each other for two, three hours, you know, and then allow them to leave and they see each other at school on Monday, right? (laughs) Give each other that nod. He's like, I saw saw you, dog. I saw you, you know? I mean, that brings people together. And I think the biggest thing that we um, are, and I think this is evident from um, the events over this past summer, the more that people talk to each other across their differences and see their similarities and see the things that we love um, and the things that we cherish and the commonalities that we have, that you know, brings down those walls of interpersonal um, racism or interpersonal um, forms of oppression, it, interpersonal iterations of oppression. Now, there are a lot of hip hop albums um, that push the envelope even further by getting the listener to question things like police brutality, mass incarceration, the war on drugs. Um, you know, uh, one of my favorite favorite songs is from um, a group called Dead Prez called They School. And it's all about uh, a whitewashed curriculum. It's all about the challenges and struggles of being a non-white person in a traditional American public school and how racist that context is. I mean, it's a hard song, especially if you're not ready for it, right? Mm-hmm. And so... There are a lot of hip hop um, um, artists who are out there really pushing the envelope to get people to question these things about um, <clears throat> about uh, injustice, uh, inequity, et cetera, et cetera. So, yeah, I think that hip hop is one of those key um, tools to help the community understand what's going on and how these things really play out. I mean, think about all the people that suddenly began to think about the idea of probation and the challenges of probation in the wake of, uh, you know, Meek Mill and, and thinking about Meek's story. You know, that's, that's important stuff, and you can't, you can't scoff at that. Definitely. I want to point out that I have not used the word absolutely um, as of yet, um, for uh, those of you that are just listening to the podcast for the first time, you don't know, but that's my go-to word. Uh, in fact, we may just edit this out. I don't know. Um, but I was just thinking about it. Uh, I was so, about to actually say it. Absolutely. <laughs> so, uh, 
we I, I want to kind of close with 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 this. Uh, well, I take that back because I'm going to ask you two more things. Um, uh, we always end the show the same way, but before we get there, um, if you had to pick a song that represents well this moment in history in which we are living, I, what would it be? And and and, and I I'll give you a second to think. I was just thinking about the fact that. 40 or 50 years from now, people are going to look back at 2020 and be like, you lived through that? <laughs> 2020 has been, has been um, challenging uh, for a lot of reasons. And I, you know, I've seen all the memes. It started with Kobe, right, in, in February, man, losing, losing a basketball hero. Um, but then, uh, and, and I'll give some personal context to this. In February, I found out I was going to be a principal. And I was like, yes, I'm going to be a principal. In April, in the middle of the pandemic, I was like, oh, my goodness, I'm going to be a principal. <laughs> and it changed my tone, right? Um, so with all that's going on, um, uh, from Breonna Taylor to George Floyd to Ahmaud Arbery, these are names for us, but for families that was a brother and, and a sister and, and a loved one um, for friends. All, all that's going on, all the conversations that's happening. Is there a song or an album that you can like look to and be like, man, this, this, this may be, uh, this connects well. While you think, have you guys seen those people say like, cause you know, JLo and Shakira had that, that halftime show and they're like, who would have thought that they were ushering in the end of the world? <laughs> Like that was the beginning of the end and that's supposed to carry us through. I would have to sanely say as, 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 um, if I'm really being honest, the first song that really does come to my mind, I, I got to go with Kendrick and either the song, all right, or the entire to pimp a butterfly album. Um, cause the album is about transformation right and and acceptance um and the song all right originally in the text of the album in the space of the album all right is not a protest song all right is an, a is a personal affirmation that you know you've got all this you in you know speaking as kendrick you know i've amassed all of this you know success i've finally gotten to where i want to be and i've got all of these problems and, and I don't know what to do with them, but God got me and I'm going to be all right. And of course, uh, in the wake of earlier protests around um, Trayvon Martin and uh, Eric Garner and, and Mike Brown, um, we going to be all right started being used as, you know, a rallying cry, right? Um, and the song was elevated you know, to be this, this bigger statement, which is something that I love about, about not just hip hop, but art in general. You can always take something that just starts out as this small seed and let it grow to something that stands, that's even bigger than the artist, her himself. And so when I think about today, the, the one refrain that keeps going through my mind is, yeah, you know, it's great that we had a lot of white folks that suddenly wanted to be allies. We got a lot of white folks that are suddenly asking critical questions and coming to some form of consciousness. But of course, with the news cycle, that's going to go down. 
and then something else is going to happen and the conversation will go up again and then the news cycle will you know leave and you know activity will go down and it'll oscillate back and forth like that but in the end we gonna be all right i do truly fundamentally believe that because i see the the work that's happening around the country uh, in dekalb uh, in the state of illinois uh, around the world um you know when you've got the planet my brother lives in uh berlin and he was uh in attendance at at some of the um protests in berlin to something that happened in the united states wow and they were out there in force yo i mean thousands and thousands of people in the streets of berlin you know with fists in the air you know also chanting we gonna be all right you know so that that always leaves a lump in my throat. You know, I'm starting to get one right now to think about how beautiful that is. And that despite the fact that there are people out there who want to be willfully ignorant, the fact that you have people who are trying to argue against well-established history, well-established um, quantitative studies, well-established bodies of statistics, um, you know, personal testimonials from people about how they've had to deal with certain things across their life, not just one or two times, but repeatedly. Um, it's all right, because we're going to be all right, right? You know, and I think we have to look at it that way. That's, that, that's Yeah, that's beautiful. That should almost be our closing. But um, one of our traditions on on the podcast is to um, have kind of like our final thought. And usually Maurice will have his piece and then I will say um, my piece. But since you are our <laughs> interviewee, what is the one thing that you want our listeners to walk away with, with this episode? You can always find knowledge and inspiration in the most unlikely places. So keep yourself and your ears open. You know, and for those of you out there who think that you can't understand what they're saying and it doesn't make any sense, well, here's a, here's a tip for you. Do a Google search of the song and the lyrics and read the lyrics. If you don't understand why Kendrick Lamar is a Pulitzer Prize winning musician, and for those of you out there that don't really understand the gravity of that, I'll put it this way. Um, the Pulitzer Prize in music uh, has largely been given to classical musicians. Um, it's been given to a handful of jazz musicians, most uh, post posthumously. So like Miles Davis has a Pulitzer Prize, but he didn't get it until after he died. Kendrick Lamar is a living, breathing hip hop artist who was the first one to get a prestigious award like that. That means that what that cat is saying on the on that album, and I would dare to say on all of his albums, is next level stuff. So I, I just say that to say that it's not just people out there just making stuff up. It's not people out there just talking about guns and drugs and, if I'm allowed to say this, bitches and hoes and all that stuff. There are a lot of hip hop artists that are socially conscious, that are experimental, that are stretching the boundaries of popular music and popular culture, 
and doing it in ways that allow them the space to be who they are 100% while also helping us understand not just their context, but ours, you know, our lives. You know, as much as we want to say, I mean, we can talk, we can spend an entire episode talking about Kendrick Lamar. I mean, not Kendrick, but uh, Kanye West. But go back to his albums and listen to his albums. You know, my Beautiful Dark Twisted Fantasy is easily one of the best albums that has come out in the last 20 years. And I would say for probably the next 50. It's a brilliant record, right? Give people the credit for, for what they deserve. And a lot of these artists are doing work that just does not get respected the way that it ought to across the board. You know, we have so much love for artists like the Beatles and the Rolling Stones and Bob Dylan. Well, they ain't the only ones, you know? And so I love hip hop. I'll ride or die for hip hop. Um, <laughs> And yeah, and as a part of the hip hop community, we have our conversations, we have our debates, you know, I mean, that's what all cultures do. So, you know, respect us and respect that hip hop is bigger than what you might think it is. You know, if you want me to respect country music, respect hip hop. Perfect. That couldn't have been uh, said better. Uh, so thank you for tuning in. Um, I am one of your hosts, Lisa Jacobson. And I am your other host, Maurice McDavid. Please remember that if you would like to challenge me in a freestyle battle, that you can do that and you can get this smoke. <laughs> I felt like this is the time to say it right now because we got a hip hop episode. So thank <laughs> you. <laughs> I ain't getting into that. <laughs> but you guys have been so wonderful. This has been so much fun. And you two are amazing. You really, really are. This is, this is a really, really great experience. So thank you for having me on. Thank you for joining us. And to the listeners, muchas gracias for tuning in. Adios.